Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. If you're reading from a pew Bible this morning, that will be on page 75 of the New Testament. Please open up your word or your Bibles with me. Uh, Consider the word of the Lord together. Again, this is John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father, He who does not honor the the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth, those who did the good deeds, to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, this is a weighty, a weighty word that we have given to us this morning. a message of eternal value and eternal significance for each one of us. Father, I pray that the the power of your own hand would accompany the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that you would arouse us from any sleepiness, any lethargy, any slothfulness and laziness in our own walk with you, any negligence of your ways, any ways in which we have sinned against you or others this week. Father, I pray that you in mercy would come and renew within us our repentance so that we might perform deeds in keeping with true repentance. God, save us from hypocrisy. We would not be actors coming in here and putting on a mask to cover up 
the reality of our lives through the rest of the week. Father, please keep us from loving you and praising you with lips only, but not worshiping you with our hearts. Father, we love you. And as I pray often, we we want to love you more. Lord Jesus, we've seen you with the eyes of faith. How we want to see you far more clearly than we do. It's our greatest need this morning is to see you more clearly than we currently see you. And Father, even as we we pray that, we realize that, uh, or at least we remember that Carol Huben's mother is now seeing you more clearly than she ever could have imagined, uh, even now at this moment. Clothed in your righteousness covered in your blood. She looks upon you without shame. And she sings with a fuller heart than any of us can. Great is thy faithfulness. To depart and be with you is far better, Lord, and we know that from your word, but she knows that in experience. And uh, Father, we pray that you would be with Carol, be with Lauren, be with the rest of their, their family as, uh, as they grieve the, the giving back of this mother, this grandmother, this great-grandmother. Help them sojourn on in faithfulness until the day when they themselves come to see you face to face, Lord. Lord, we also lift up this church body. and uh, The presence of the enemy has not gone unnoticed. And Father, we pray that we would not fear, that we would not cower before the evil one, but that we would resist him, standing firm in the faith, resolute in our confidence in the gospel, having united hearts and minds, striving together for the unity of the gospel, unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Father, we pray for that grace to be ours today. Would you please bring us closer to that reality to which you call us and give us wisdom and guidance and much needed direction. Let your will be made known. Father, we pray you'd be with us this morning as we need you to be. We call upon you as our only help in time of trouble. And we look forward to praising you as the one who comes through for those who wait upon him. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we are uh, getting back into John chapter 5. Probably going to need to turn me down just a little bit, Eric. Um, Coming back to John chapter 5 and really looking at a section in this chapter that's unfolding for us the the glory of who Jesus actually is. uh, What's really revealed 
in this chapter is um, important truths concerning the nature of Christ that serve as the foundation of our confession and what we mean when we declare our hope and the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What do we mean when we call upon him as the Son of God? Well, the foundation of that confession is right here in John chapter 5, at least revealed to us here in John chapter 5. This is what we mean when we declare him to be the Son of God. Now, John 5 offers for us a glimpse in time into the eternal. And if your mind right now is not in the eternal, then you need to wake up and rouse yourself from sleep and pay attention. Get your mind out of the world. Like, I'm serious. I, I don't, I'm not trying to like crack whips or anything like that, but guys, we come here to worship. We come here to set our minds upon the Christ who is and the one who is our life. Now, if you've been doing that throughout the week, praise the Lord. You ought to be setting your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Because on the day when he comes, he will come revealed in all his glory, and and he will come bearing forth the fullness of that testimony and witness that your life is hidden with God in Christ. You should rejoice in that. And if you've been doing that all week, this is the time for you to bring that into the corporate gathering, not to leave it outside of the corporate gathering. Now, some of you feel what I'm saying. We need grace. May the Lord give it. What we have in John chapter 5 is a glimpse in time into the eternal where we're being allowed to peek into the inner Trinitarian relationship between Father and Son that has eternally existed in God. And that ought to astound us. Yet once we get to John chapter 14 to 16, by the way, we're going to have the Holy Spirit's eternal relationship with the Father and Son rolled into this discussion, this presentation of the triune God by the Apostle John, the Holy Spirit gives us here. But here in John chapter 5, we see the uniqueness of the father-son relationship revealed to us as it has eternally existed in God. At least some measure of what that relationship is like. It's like what Augustine observed, what I said last week, that the only way that we come to know anything about who God is in himself is by looking at how he has revealed himself to us in time. In space, in history, in the, in the ways in which he acts and communicates with us in this world. I, I appreciate how Joel Beakey described this reality in um, his Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 1. It's on page 893, for those of you who have it and want to check the reference. Um, Joel Beakey wrote, Theologians distinguish between the essential trinity, which is God's triunity in his eternal nature, And then the economic trinity, God's triunity in his historical works, that is, his triunity in the way in which we observe it in time and in history. Since God's works reveal his nature, the economic trinity reveals God's essential trinity through the incarnate ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, as we saw last week, and in relation to that quote, what we're saying is when we look to Jesus, we see an unfolding of the very nature of God. 
presented to us in his life and in his ministry. So that through his life and ministry, the son, as he beholds the works of the father and then does everything that the father does, as we look upon Jesus in his earthly life and in his earthly ministry, we see before our eyes an explanation of who God is and of what God is like. So that if we want to know who God is and we want to know what He's like and we want to know what He expects from us, there's only one place where we can look. We must look to Jesus Christ the Son. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. It's the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He is the one who has made Him known. And so that's where we look to get to know our God. Now, that's really where we, where we left off last week in John chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says the Father loves the Son. Right, so, so in John 5, 19, let me start back there. John 5, 19, Jesus says, whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner. And then in John 5, 20, Jesus goes on to say, and the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So Jesus says, I only do that which I see the Father doing, and whatever the Father does, I do in the same way. And by the way, the Father loves the Son and discloses before the Son everything that the Father's doing. That's simply a statement of, of fact relating to us, the reality that everything Jesus sees the Father doing, Jesus himself as God the Son is participating in that work and doing it with him. And that's how we see the glory of God shining through Jesus Christ. That's where we left off last week. And I just want to point something out, by the way. Before we move past John 5.20, I want you to notice how the Son's relationship with the Father is being described in this verse. When Jesus says the Father loves the Son and shows himself all that he himself is doing and will reveal greater works than these so that you might marvel... The way that the Father's relationship with the Son is being described is in terms of affection. It's not merely in terms of intellectual fact. It's in terms of the Father's affection for the Son. Now, I think that's significant. That when the Father wants you and I to understand who the Son is in relation to Him, He explains it to us by putting His affections on display in the life of His Son. As if there's, there, there are no words to capture or describe the fullness of what the Son means to the Father. There's no way for us to really come to grips with the depth of love that the Father has for His Son. The only way that we can come to understand anything like it is to behold that love as it manifests in the Son's life. I think that's significant. That the Father loves the Son, and He wants you and He wants me to see how much He loves His Son. Now we see that in the relationship Jesus had with the Father during His time tabernacling among us, right? His time of earthly ministry and walking around in this world. But that love relationship between father and son was not revealed to us just so that we would see it demonstrated in Christ's life. It was revealed to us so that you and I would have our own affection stirred over the son and that we would come to join with the father in offering all of our love unto 
this glorious person who is God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the wonder of it all is that Jesus says in John 5.20, the Father will show me greater works than these so that you may marvel. That's, that's where we ended last week. In other words, the Father's going to put the reality of his love for the Son on display in even greater ways in his life by revealing to the Son greater works for him to do so that you and I would marvel. Now, what are the greater works that Jesus is talking about when he says in John 5.20, there are greater works that the Father's going to show me so that you would marvel? Well, in what follows in John chapter 5, Jesus speaks of two specific works that the Father's going to show to him that he would put on display and manifest for all the world to see. And we're just going to look at uh, those two as briefly as we can, but as fully as needed. You see the first uh, work that the Father's going to show the Son in John 5, 21, and that is the work of raising the dead and giving them life. In John 5.21, Jesus says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Now again, there's a strong comparison here between what the Father is doing and what the Son is doing. So just as the Father does something, even so, or in the same way, the Son does it too. Right? It's, that, it's that reaffirmation of what's already been stated in John 5.19, that whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same way. This is just being stated in a different way. And what the Father is said to be doing here is raising the dead and giving them life. And Jesus looks at these Jewish Pharisees in Jerusalem, near the temple, and says to them, just as the Father does that work, so also the Son does that work. You know, one of the most clearly distinguishing differences, if you will, between God and his creatures is God's ability to give life. The fact that you and I do not give life to ourselves, nor can even keep ourselves alive. We have not even the ability to keep ourselves alive. That fact is definitional of what it means for you and me to be a creature. That we were created, and we do not have a life and existence in and of ourselves. We live on borrowed life. We live on life that was given to us. Now, being self-existent and living in and of himself is definitional of what it means for God to be God. If you and I, not having life in ourselves and not being able to keep ourselves alive and not being able to give life to another is definitional of what it means for us to be creatures, then it is definitional of God, for God to be God, for Him to have life to give in and of Himself. This is why God is described in the Scriptures as the living God as opposed to all the false gods. He is the God of life, and that's why He reveals Himself to us as or with the name Yahweh. He is the God who is self-existent, the one who has life in and of Himself and is able then to give that life to others. Which, by the way, that's why you and I are called to use all areas of our lives in a manner that truly honors the one who gave that life to us. 
Your life is not your own. (laughs) The Christian can say that. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, you are called to glorify God with your body. But every single creature, every single human being on the face of the planet is able to say that as well. Your life is not your own. You might live your life as though it were your own, but at the end of your days, you're going to discover the one from whom that life came. And it wasn't you. And you'll have to give an account for that, right? This is why it's so significant, so important for us to live our lives for the glory of the one who gave us that life. It's his life. And we are borrowing that life. And therefore, it must be used in accordance with the will of the owner. Now, just that's just a side note. But hopefully you keep that in mind. Now, God shows off the glory of his life-giving power. Not only through the normal process of making and sustaining creation, but he also demonstrates that glory when he chooses to raise the dead and bring them back to life. Fix that door. (laughs) That's what it sounded like. Hopefully that's not describing the the air in the room. (laughs) Anyway. God shows off his life, the glory of his life-giving power, not only through the normal process of making and sustaining creation, but he also shows that glory off when he chooses to raise the dead and bring them back to life. In fact, God says that particularly, this is what distinguishes him from every other false god in the world. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, the Lord looks to his people and says, see now that I, even I, am he. Now just parentheses here, in the Greek version of this text, this is where one of those famous ego imi statements appear. So the way that the translators translated the Hebrew into Greek somewhere around 250 BC, the best way that they could capture what this was talking about was to bring in the phrase ego imi, I am, absolute. So that'll be, that'll be important once we get to like John 6, John 8, especially John 8, John 10. Keep that in mind. But anyway, the Lord says here in Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. What's the proof of that? I put to death, and I give life. I wound, and I heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. The Lord says, this is what proves the reality that I am God and there is no other. There is no other one who can bring down to death and give life. No one but me. That's why, for example, why in the Old Testament, when someone was raised from the dead, say through the means of a prophet, that prophet was utterly dependent upon the God of life to give life to the deceased person. So, Elijah, right? 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 21 to 22, Elijah sees this widow who, whose son has just perished, right? And he wants to see this widow's son restored to her from death. So, so what did he do? He didn't stand over the corpse of this widow's son and just demand that this young man come back to life. No, he hit his knees and he bowed before the God of life and he prayed, Oh Lord God, let this child's life return to him. And in mercy, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. 
and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. See, only God could do that because only God has the power and the ability to give life, and therefore Elijah is utterly dependent on the Lord to raise that young man's life. Well, that is what makes Jesus' claim in John 5.21 so unambiguous and so glorious. There's no doubt about what Jesus is claiming to be in John 5.21 when he says he gives life according to his own will. Jesus says, just as the Father does that, I do that too. And he amplifies that even more when he says the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Literally, to whom he wills. So the life that the Son is giving is not dependent upon the will of any other than that will that the Son is exercising. See, here Jesus is not claiming to raise the dead the way that it happened through others like Elijah. He was saying that he possesses in himself the same power and the same authority to raise the dead that the Father has. Right? A power that necessarily includes the ability to use that power according to his own will. Now that doesn't mean that the Son ever operated uh, separate from the Father. It's not as though he willed to bring someone back to life, but the Father didn't will to bring someone back to life. No, this is talking about the shared will of, of God that Father, Son, and Spirit all exercise. It's the one divine will of God that Jesus is talking about here. There's only one divine will, but clearly Jesus' point in making this statement here is is simply to say that just as the Father can raise the dead at any time He chooses, so also the Son can raise the dead at any time He chooses. And when that power is put on display, the Father's intention in putting that on display is that you and I would marvel. That we would be astounded over what we see in Jesus. And we actually see this happen clearly in the Gospels, right? In Mark chapter 5, verse 41, there's this synagogue official's daughter who has died. In Jesus, we see this scene. In the scene, Jesus enters into the house. He removes everyone else from there. He maintains just a few disciples and her parents with him in the room. And he doesn't stand over her body saying, Lord, let this little girl's life return to her. That's not what he does. He stands before this dead little girl and says, Talitha kum. Young lady, I say to you, arise. Come back to life. And what does that girl do? How does she respond? The dead is raised. She obeys the command of Jesus for her to come back to life and rise up again. Or we see the same power demonstrated in John, right? There's this real famous chapter in John. John 11, Lazarus. Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus in John eleven forty three, 43, and he commands that dead man, Lazarus, come forth. And what does Lazarus do? He comes right out of that grave. Now, who has power to command the dead like that? Who has the authority to command one who has succumbed to the curse of God to let that curse be loosed and to come out free from it? God himself, right? No mere creature, no mere man. 
Only the true and living God has authority and power to do that. And what we see in Jesus' life and ministry is that he did not seek to go about doing these kinds of things and to put this glorious power of his on display the way that Elijah did or others. Jesus did not plead for another to give life and to raise the dead. Jesus, according to his divine power, stood before the world as Yahweh in the flesh and by the power of his command, he summoned the dead back to life. The Father has intended to put that work on display in the life and ministry of Jesus so that you and I would marvel over his Son. Now, there's a second work that the Father shows the Son in or, uh, for the Son to do in order that you and I would marvel. And you see that in verse 22, where the Son not only gives life to the dead as he wills, but he also executes judgment on behalf of the Father. Jesus says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, this does not mean that the Father is absolutely removed from the process of judgment. You see in Revelation chapter 21, for example, that, or at the end of chapter 20, God is sitting on the throne with the Lamb. They are judging the world according to what is written in the books. So it's not saying, Jesus is not saying that the Father is absolutely or completely removed from judging the world. What he is saying, though, is that the primary person within the Trinity who administers the judgment of God upon the world is the person of the Son. See, this is, this is really the supreme demonstration of the Father's love for his Son. Right? When the world of men is brought before God in judgment, the one we will all have to give an answer to is God the Son. Right? It's, 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 that, that ought to bring to us a sense of awe and wonder and, and, and amazement over the fact that God the Father has entrusted all authority to judge to Jesus Christ the Son. It's as if the Father in judgment, it's as if the Father has stepped behind His Son, forcing all the world into this situation where the only dealings anyone will have with the Father is through the Son. Now we as believers, we recognize that, right? Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We with joy and in faith, we come to the Father through Jesus. We plead the name of Christ as our Savior. We hold fast to the promise of His blood as the cleansing element of our sin. We cling to His perfect righteousness. We clothe ourselves with Christ. Galatians 3.27, right? We hide ourselves within Him. We fully trust in Jesus as we come to the Father. So that's true for the believer. We come to the Father and we have all of our dealings with the Father through the Son. But this is also true for the unbeliever. Even the unbeliever will only have dealings with God the Father through His Son. This is Acts 17. Was it 31? Nick, check my reference. Where are you? 1730, 1731? Oh, there you are. Hey. What's the deal? <laughs> the, father, the Father has declared to... Man, you really threw me off there. I, I thought you were like right there because that's normally where you sit. Acts 1731. The Father has declared 
to all the world that all men everywhere should repent because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness, having furnished proof to all men by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh, by the way, that judgment will be administered through who? The man, Jesus Christ. Even the world will only have dealings with God the Father through the person of the Son. And, and this, is, this reaches its climax at, at the judgment day, right? On that day, that will be the most prominent view that any of our eyes have ever seen concerning the depth of love that the Father has for His Son. When on judgment day, the Father forces everyone to deal with Him through His Son. I found that just wondrously marvelous. I, I can't wait to see the glory of Christ on that day. To see the love of the Father manifest on that day for His Son. And I want you to notice what, what John gives here in 5.22 as the reason for why the Father gives all judgment to the Son. Yes, it is because the Father loves the Son. That is why everyone will have to honor the Son. But I want you to understand that the main emphasis here is that everyone, all judgment has been entrusted to the hands of the Son so that all would come to honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Now to honor the Son, it doesn't just mean that we hold Him in high esteem or that we give Him great respect as we would the great men of the world, men of renown. No, the, the honor that the Father wants for us to give to the Son is the exact same honor, both in kind and degree, that we ought to give to God the Father Himself. Now that's blasphemous, and, and more blasphemous than anything else Jesus had said, has said so far, unless Jesus has the inherent worth And actually deserves to be honored in the same way that the Father is honored. The only way that it could be possible for the Father's will for humanity to be that we would give all honor to the Son, even as we would give all honor to the Father, is if the Son is actually in His essence and in His worth equal to the Father. Otherwise, what is the Father calling upon us to do? Commit idolatry. This is a problem with Jehovah Witnesses, right? Jesus is just the most exalted creature among all of God's creation. Well, if that's the case, then the Father is commanding us to commit idolatry. No, when the Father wants us to honor the Son, even as we would honor the Father, that is a statement concerning the nature, the essence, the work, the, 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 the quality of being that belongs to God the Son. That He is in, in all of those ways, in all of those areas, absolutely equal to the Father. And, and that is what the Father will have from everyone in this world. He will have everyone honoring the Son, even as they honor the Father. Now, what's interesting to me is that the fullness, though the fullness of this mystery had not yet been unveiled to these Jews with whom Jesus is here speaking in John 5, all throughout the Old Testament, the Father had been pushing His Son forward to the place of prominence in the minds of His people. 
Have you ever noticed that reading through the Old Testament? Have you ever noticed those sections in the Old Testament where the Father is clearly pushing the Son forward as the object of worship in the minds of his people? Maybe you haven't. Well, let me give you just a couple of examples where we see that. Psalm chapter 2, right? In Psalm chapter 2, God calls all the nations and the kings of the earth to give him the honor that is due to him. But what we find in Psalm chapter 2 is that there's only one way that the nations of the world and the kings of the earth can honor God the way they're supposed to, and that is if they give honor to his son. So in verse 11 of Psalm chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, The Lord calls out to the kings of the earth and he says, Be wise, O kings of the earth, show discernment. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And then how are they supposed to do that? Here's the explanation in in Psalm 2.12. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. You see the connection between those two verses there, that that the kings of the earth are being called upon to give honor and worship to God, and the way that they're going to do that is by worshiping or kissing or doing homage to the Son. In other words, proper worship of Yahweh is dependent on whether or not you will kiss Yahweh's Son, whether or not you will do homage to Him. In fact, in Daniel chapter 7, we see another example of this. Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. We're going to look at this passage more next week, so I I don't want to spend too much time on it. But this passage makes clear beyond all doubt that the Father's intention is that the entire world would not only submit to His Son, but worship Him. Worship this one who is titled in that passage, one like a son of man. This is a a, a glorious passage. I, I don't want to... I'm feeling tempted to to hunker in it. I don't want to do that, hunker down in it. Daniel 7, you know the scene. The scene in Daniel 7 is the judgment seat of God. You've got this this picture of of rivers of fire-like substance flowing out from underneath the throne of God. The Ancient of Days is upon His throne. His court is set in order. The books are open. And all the nations are being gathered before Him to be judged. And then in the midst of this scene pops in this this one who is described like a son of man. And he is presented unto the Ancient of Days, the one seated on the throne. And then in response to that action, the son of man being presented to the Ancient of Days, the Ancient of Days gives to the son a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Now, it's really significant to understand that word serve. That word only appears ten times in the entire Hebrew Old Testament. And every single other time that word is used, it is with explicit reference to worshiping God. And here... The Lord is commanding all the nations, peoples, languages of the earth to worship the the one like a son of man. That's an amazing passage to me. The the, the Greek word in the Septuagint, for those of you who are interested, is latruo. So, very important word. See, the father, even in the Old Testament, the father was pushing forward his son as an object of worship and as a person worthy of the highest honor to be given uh, by his people. 
That, that even through the prophets, God the Father was making known that his will for the world was for his son to be honored and worshipped even as he himself is honored and worshipped. And that's why in 523 it says that to reject the son and to refuse to honor the son in this way is to reject the father himself. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And that's exactly what the Jews were trying to do. They were trying to divide father and son in this scene and and say that Jesus was somehow dishonoring the father by breaking the Sabbath and, and doing this healing on the Sabbath day. They were trying to divide father and son, but Jesus says to them, you can't do that. You can't pretend to continue honoring the father when you are refusing to honor the son whom the father has sent. That's a radical statement. And one that would be blasphemous unless the Son truly were equal to the Father in power and glory and therefore equal, equally worthy of being worshipped and honored with the Father. Now Jesus makes these claims to these Jews, but he also brings in works that he does as a witness to prove that what he's saying is true. He's going to appeal to this later on in, in 5.36, for example. In chapter 5, verse 36, he's going to say, the works that I do bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Right? So I'm telling you the truth, and the works that I'm doing are proving to you that I'm telling you the truth, in other words. But the works that the Father gave Jesus to do demonstrate that his words are true. If these are the greater works that Jesus was given to do, so that we might marvel, how are those greater works demonstrated in the life and ministry of Jesus? That's where Jesus goes next. He has these greater works that are being given to him from the Father to do so that we might marvel, and then he goes into explaining how these greater works are going to be manifested in the world. And there are basically two ways that these works are going to be manifested. Both of them involve the act of giving life, and both of them involve the act of executing judgment. One takes place in the present, and the other will take place in the future. We're going to look at only the first one this morning, the one that takes place in the present. How is Jesus' power to raise the dead and his authority to execute judgment revealed in the present? Well, in verses 24 through 25, we find that it is revealed through the spiritual resurrection of his people. And this is truly glorious. Jesus' power to raise the dead and his authority to execute judgment on behalf of the Father is manifested in this world in the present through the spiritual resurrection of his people. Let me show you where I see that here. You see in verse 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will what? They will live. What is the proof that the Son has the power to give life according to His will and to execute judgment for the glory of the Father? Well, here Jesus says the proof is demonstrated when I raise the dead by the power of my command. Now, clearly, Jesus is talking about a resurrection here, right? We are all in agreement on that, I'm assuming. But I want you to notice, Jesus is not talking about the final physical resurrection that is going to happen in the future. That comes in verse uh, 28, 
right? Where, where Jesus says the hour is coming, it's not now, but the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, some to a resurrection of life and others to a resurrection of judgment. But that's not the resurrection Jesus is talking about here in verse 25. Because he says that this is a resurrection that is happening right now. The hour is coming and is now, right, for this voice of the Son of God to bring the dead back to life. And by the way, we also know that Jesus is not talking about the final physical resurrection of the dead in verse 25 because not everyone in verse 25 participates in this resurrection. Jesus says in verse 25, it is only those who hear the voice of the Son of God who will be the ones who live. Now what happens at the final day of resurrection when the, when the, the cry of the Son of Man goes out into all the earth and raises the dead and brings them forth for judgment? Will there be any missing on that day? No, that is, a, that, that is universal participation, right? The sea will give up their dead. The graves will open up and all the dead from all human history will rise to stand before the Son of Man for judgment. That is a universal uh, experience that all of humanity will have. However, in verse 25, those who hear this voice of the Son of God and are raised up to life, are, are, well, are raised from the dead, are raised unto life. Jesus says they will live. Not everyone we know in history is going to experience what it means to live with God and have eternal life. So what is this talking about? What does it mean to live? That's where verse 24 is helpful. When Jesus says those who hear the voice of the Son of God will live, what he means by that is they will have eternal life and they will not come into judgment. Or they, they, they are those who have passed out of death and have come into life. That, that is what happens to those who hear the voice of the Son of God and live. They, they are given this gift of eternal life. So what resurrection is Jesus talking about then? Well, the context indicates that Jesus is talking about the spiritual resurrection of his people. The resurrection to new spiritual life that every true believer will experience in this life before being called to go to Christ in glory. Right? This is what Jesus spoke of in John 3.3 when he said, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is a real spiritual change that must take place in order for a person to become a member of the kingdom of heaven. It is not merely a decision that this person makes to get out of the line going to hell and to get into the line going to heaven. It is not the person who holds the key to the handcuffs that have bound God to keep God from saving him or her. That's not what it's about. Jesus says you must be born again. You did nothing to cause yourselves to be born the first time. You're, you did nothing to cause yourselves to be born the first time. What makes you think you did something to cause yourself to be born the second time? Why would Jesus use that analogy unless that were the case? And even here, what, what, is, what is Jesus describing and depicting here? He's depicting us as a bunch of spiritually dead people who are laying before him unable to do anything until his voice comes and gives us life. 
You didn't choose to open up your ears and cause yourself to hear that voice. Jesus is, in John 5, Jesus is talking about that same reality he was describing in John 3 about being born again. Uh, John 1, what is it, 13, those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but those who were born of God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Those who have been brought to new life by the working of the Spirit of God, blowing upon them with the truth. Jesus is here in John 5 describing that as a kind of resurrection. Now the reason Jesus describes this as a resurrection is because by nature each one of us is born into a state of spiritual death and corruption. You know that? Ephesians 2.1, we are all what in our trespasses and sins? We're all sick. We all, just, we all need medicine because we have this disease of trespasses and sin. No, it says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. There's a lack of spiritual life in us, in our fallen condition. We are born as fallen sons and daughters of Adam. It says in Ephesians 2, just after this verse, we are born as children of wrath. We are absolutely dead in our spiritual condition before God the Father. And we see this depicted in so many ways, even in the Gospel of John. We've already seen this in, in, in a num numerous ways. In John 3.18, it describes us as being born into a state that is already condemned. We're already judged, Jesus says. As fallen sons and daughters of Adam, we were already born in a state that was judged. John 1.5, we are born into this situation where we're so spiritually darkened and unable to see the light of God shining upon us that we can't even comprehend it when it is shining upon us. Uh, uh, John 3.36, we're, we're in this fallen condition in Adam, and so long as we stay in that spiritually dead state, the wrath of God continues to abide upon us. It's only when the Son of God comes with His life-giving power and summons our souls out of our spiritual death by the thundering, almighty voice of the Son of God. It's only when that happens that you and I are brought out of our dead state in sin and are brought into new life with God. Alright, so that leaves us with a question. This is where I want to end today. How do we know if we have participated in this spiritual resurrection? Jesus says in verse 25 that it's only those who hear the voice of the Son of God who will live. How do you know if you've heard the voice of the Son of God calling you forth to spiritual resurrection? Well, I think verse 24 helps us with that as well, doesn't it? Because Jesus says in verse 24 that it's the one who, the one who heard or has heard the voice of the Son of God and has been brought into this new life is the same one who hears Jesus' words and believes in the Father who sent Him. You see the connection between those two verses. In, in verse 24, we are hearing the word of Jesus. In verse 25, we are hearing the voice of Jesus. If you hear the word of Jesus and you believe in the Father as the one who sent him, then you are one who has heard the voice of the Son of God bringing you to new life. So to, in other words, to hear his voice is to truly, spiritually, and savingly hear his word. 
Many, many people might hear the message about Jesus. They might hear the word that Jesus spoke, but not all of them will have ears to hear the truth of Jesus in a saving way. Right? This is, this is Matthew 13, 11, why Jesus says to his disciples, to you it has been granted to know the kingdom, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now, if that's not talking about election, I don't know what that's talking about. That there are specific sinners to whom it has been granted to know and to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God, and to everyone else it has not been granted. Why do some believe and why do others not? Why? Why can people sitting in the same congregation listening to the exact same sermon, preached in the exact same way, at the same time, one of them will go away unsaved, and the other one will go away radically changed. What made that difference? Was it that one of them was smarter and more intellectual and just could figure it out on their own, and the other one was too stupid to get it? In my own experience, I know that's not the case. If it were up to our intelligence, I would still be left in the dark. Some people, Jesus says, are granted the ability to know the truth about God's kingdom, and other people are not granted that ability. He says the same thing in John 10, 25 to 27. Where the Pharisees, these same men with whom he's speaking here in John 5... These same men come back to Jesus and they say, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Man, if you you are the Christ, then just tell us straightforwardly. Tell us plainly. Yes, no. Are you the Christ? Jesus looks at them and says, I've already told you the answer to that. But you did not believe. He goes on to say, the works that I do testify to you about who I am, and yet you still do not believe. Why does Jesus say they don't believe? What's the reason for which they do not believe Jesus? Jesus says here, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. See here, the distinguishing mark between those who truly belong to Christ and those who do not those who are his sheep and those who are not his sheep, the distinguishing mark is that you hear the voice of the Son of God and you respond in faith. Because Jesus says to them, I've already told you the truth, but you don't believe. You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Oh, by the way, my sheep hear my voice. They hear what I'm saying. I know them and they follow me. That's the difference between those who are Christ's sheep and those who are not. Same message goes forth. Same message goes forth. Some people hear and believe, and they respond. They follow Jesus. Others hear and do not believe, and continue to ask the question, would you just tell us plainly who you are? Some people get it, and some people don't. What's the difference? Some have heard the voice of the Son of God. 
that powerful, almighty voice that brings them to new spiritual life and others haven't. That's the difference. How do you know if you've heard the voice of the Son of God and participated in this first spiritual resurrection? The question is, do you hear Christ's voice in his word? And are you compelled in light of his word to follow him? Is there this inner draw and compulsion to follow Christ in light of the truth he's made known about himself? If that is you, then you have participated in this resurrection that Jesus is talking about here in John 5.25. This resurrection that gives you eternal life and that delivers you from eternal death. By the way, if you want to know where I'm at on Revelation 20, this is way out of left field for, for you, I know. I believe this is the first resurrection that Revelation 20 is talking about that saves a person from the second death. The second death has no power over them. Isn't that what Jesus is saying right here in John 5, 24 and 25? Those who hear the voice of the Son of God, they're going to live. They have eternal life. They've been passed out of death into life. Second death has no power over them. You guys can go study that on your own later. But I think it's, there's a connection there. Well, that's what Christ is teaching here. Christ, if, if he's raised you to new spiritual life by his power and his sovereign will, then you will be one who believes, who hears his word and believes in the Father as the one who sent him. And you need to, you need to understand this. If that's you, it's because Jesus chose of his sovereign will to bring you to new spiritual life. That's what he says in John 5.21. He gives life to who? To whom he wills. To whomever he wills. If you have that new spiritual life, Jesus Christ has drawn near to you and spoken your name and brought you forth out of death into life with him. That's glorious. That's truly glorious. All right. One more comment on that. This is how the Son's power and authority to give life and execute judgment is being put on display right now. Right now, in the time that's now. There's a day coming when it's going to be put on display in the most uh, sp uh, splendid manner, right? Like, everyone will be in awe whenever they see the Son of God come splitting the sky with His glory. All the nations of the earth who have refused to believe in Him, they will mourn over Him. And John the Apostle says, even so, come, Lord. There's a day coming when God's people will be in awe over the, the power and the glory and the magnificence of Jesus, the Lamb, executing judgment and giving eternal life to those whom He chooses to save. But right now and in this time, the way in which that authority and that power of Christ is being manifested is by sinners being brought out of their spiritual death and into spiritual life. And you got to get this if you're going to understand the reality of who you are as a Christian. If you've heard the voice of the Son of God speaking to you, if the Word of God has been made known to you, and you have been brought to new spiritual life, then you are a living, breathing, walking, perpetual miracle performed by the Son of God. You didn't bring yourself to saving faith in Christ. Jesus did that. 
What, what, what do you think caused the church to be established in history? What do you think made the gospel go forth into all the world and bear fruit for the glory of God consistently over the past 2,000 years? What makes the name of Jesus cause sinners to tremble and break them free from the bondage of their sin? What makes all that happen? Isn't it the power of the Son of God attending the message of Jesus that makes that happen? You know, had this power of Jesus to raise the dead never been put on display in the history of the world, there would be no church. No one would ever have believed in Jesus as the Son of God. They didn't believe in Him in His life. He died with 11 shaken disciples who were barely holding on to any semblance of belief that He may have been the Messiah. He was a man despised and rejected. Right? He had no form or comeliness. He had no beauty that we would desire Him. In His life, people were rejecting Him. How much more would people be rejecting Him in His death? If the resurrection power of Christ and the power of God flowing through Him were not bringing people to saving faith in that message. If Jesus didn't have that authority, that power to give life and raise the dead, the church would never have been established. The gospel would never have spread into all the world. And as these very Jews to whom Jesus is speaking here in John 5 would come to see for themselves, if Jesus did not have the power to raise the dead spiritually to new life in His name, then the apostles who were sent out in His name would never have turned the world upside down with the saving message of Jesus. You see that? Jesus says, that is how I will demonstrate the fact that I have the power to give life to whom I will and I have the authority to execute the judgment of God on behalf of my Father by establishing my church and saving sinners for the glory of my name. And you, believer, you are a living demonstration of that. Now, there's a second way that Christ's power and glory and raising the dead and executing judgment will be demonstrated, and we've already mentioned that. That's going to happen at the day of resurrection. The the climactic demonstration of the power and the glory of Christ. Really, it's the finale of the Father's testimony concerning His love for the Son and His demand for His Son to be honored even as the Father is honored. That's the day of resurrection and the day of judgment. And we'll get into that next week. And then we'll also look and see What gives the Son this ability to raise the dead and the authority to execute judgment on behalf of the Father? We'll look at that in verses 26 and 27 next week. Would you pray with me as we we close? Father, I pray for your word to be powerfully mighty in our hearts. Lord, let your grace and your glory flow to us through the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that these wondrous truths of your sovereign will bringing sinners to new life would not cause us to doubt your goodness, would not cause us to question your justice, but would cause us to rejoice in your grace. None of us deserve spiritual life from your hand. We all deserve hell. And the fact that any of us have been enabled to hear the voice of the Son of God and to live 
It's just a mark of your great love for us that you've poured upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, please help us rejoice in you. And give us the ability to see the glory of Christ as you would have us see him. To love him as you would have us love him. And to honor him as you would have us honor him, Father. We pray for this mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you hear a benediction from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Let's consider Jesus more fully as the days go on, lest we become discouraged and disheartened. The Lord will carry us through. May you go on the peace of Christ's name. Amen.